Well, thank you for joining the podcast, uh, courtesy of the Georgetown Public Policy Review. In mid-July, after marathon negotiations, Iran and the P5 plus one agreed to a deal dubbed the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Under this plan, in exchange for several limitations on their nuclear capability, Iran will receive sanctions relief from the United States, the European Union, and the United Nations Security Council. To further discuss this topic, I'm here with Dr. Ariane Tabatabai, a nonproliferation expert and visiting assistant professor here at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Dr. Tabatabai, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Was this a good deal? <laughs> um, I think so. Uh, you know, the, the main thing is that this was a deal that both sides could agree to, that both sides could sell at home, uh, which was one of the biggest challenges for, for both the U.S. And, and for Iran. Uh, but ultimately, what we wanted was to have a deal that would curb Iran's nuclear program, um, that would make sure that the breakout time essentially would be um, extended from about six months to over a year. Um, and the Iranian side obviously wanted to get sanctions relief uh, to be able to boost its economy uh, and sort of normalize its international status, uh, which ultimately also benefits the United States, because that means that the hardline factions are going to be uh, undermined to some extent that um, the moderates and the reformists are going to be empowered for a couple of years. And that's the people that we want to be engaging with. That's the people who actually want to uh, have discussions with the rest of the region that, that uh, you know, are, are much more um, open to, to open constructive uh, negotiations and engagements on most issues. Okay. Um, from the U.S. perspective, how could the deal have been better? Uh, well, there are a number of uh, a number of elements that could have been better um, from a technical perspective, right? Um, so the time frame of the deal could have been more advantageous. Uh, in, uh, sorry, it could have been better for, for the United States. It could have been, instead of 10 years, 15 years, it could have been 20 years, 25 years. Sure. Uh, but realistically speaking, that would not have been uh, a deal that the Iranian side would have agreed to. And from the Iranian perspective, how could it have been better? Um, well, I think for the, for Iran, it, the deal ended up meeting most of its bottom lines. However, obviously, it's curbing back its enrichment program a lot, uh, which is not necessarily something the Iranians wanted. Um, they could have walked away with more centrifuges running. Uh, they could have gone more on research and development. Uh, but ultimately, the bottom lines of keeping all the facilities open, having a research and development program, uh, and um, getting sanctions relief for MET. So that's that's per perfectly uh, reasonable for them. Uh, that said, I think the, ins the uh, inspections regime as well could have been uh, not as intrusive as it is. And that would have been much more acceptable for, for Iran. Okay. What are the next steps? Well, so the first thing is adoption. Uh, the adoption day is coming up uh, pretty soon. Uh, after that, by the end of the year 2015, the International Atomic Energy Agency will have to essentially give its stamp of approval uh, and say that uh, Iran has wor worked with the IAEA, with the agency, has clarified its past activities, uh, and that it can essentially start with a clean slate. Uh, once that happens, uh, both Iran and P5 plus 1 are going to start taking a number of steps. Uh, from the Iranian side, it will be a number of technical steps. The Arak heavy water reactor, for instance, for instance will have to be uh, redesigned, remodeled, uh, the centrifuges will have to be dismantled, uh, the Fordow facility will have to be uh, sort of converted into a research and development facility as opposed to an enrichment facility. All the enrichment uh, material and activities will have to be moved to Natanz, a different facility. 
And in exchange for all of this, it will start to receive sanctions relief. Uh, so the next sort of couple of years are going to be uh, this, a number of steps are going to be taken in the next couple of years uh, by both around P5 plus one and technical and economic levels. Of the steps that you mentioned, what do you see as the biggest hurdle for both sides? Probably the sanctions relief part, uh, actually. The technical stuff is fairly straightforward. Um, it has been, they've discussed it pretty well. They State Department and DOE were obviously um, on the same page um, since Secretary Mooney's was there the entire time and was very much involved in the negotiations. I'm not sure that Treasury was as um, involved in the negotiations as DOE was, and I'm not sure that some of the things that were promised to Iran are going to be uh, necessarily, um, that you know, Treasury is essentially going to be able to, to deliver, state is going to be able to deliver. So I think sanctions relief is going to be the biggest issue. Bearing in mind also that the sanctions web we have in the United States is much more complicated than the one that the EU has, for instance. Uh, because in the U.S., sanctions involve human rights, they involve terrorism activities, and they involve the proliferation concerns. A number of sanctions overlap and go across these different uh, issues, three, diff three different issues. So that means that some of the sanctions that Iran is expecting to be lifted are not going to be lifted because they're also uh, a part of the human rights issues and a part of the terrorism issues. Uh, so for me, the sanctions bit of piece of the puzzle is really the most difficult. Another uh, hurdle uh, that you've written about, um, some within Congress have been extremely critical of the agreement. Uh, some of the presidential candidates have even vowed to repeal if elected. Uh, how did this impact the negotiations and how will this affect American standing for future nonproliferation efforts? Well, throughout the negotiations, what this de did was that, you know, first of all, we know that the Iranian side understands the U.S. system pretty well. Um, Javad Zarif, the foreign minister, studied here. Uh, so did a number of his colleagues in, in the uh, Iranian foreign ministry. So they're not uh, completely um, sort of ignorant of what happens in the United States and what the limits of power are for, for the president and so on. What it did do, though, was that uh, there was more pressure on the U.S. team, which to some extent is good because it meant that some of the concessions perhaps that they would have made, they didn't make because they knew that they couldn't sell it at home. Um, but more broadly, in terms of how people in Europe, for instance, viewed the United States, uh, it wasn't too good. Uh, a lot of people started to think of the U.S. as disorganized, as a country that perhaps couldn't lead uh, because on the one hand, you had the president going in and trying to deliver something that other people were saying, well, it doesn't matter if, you know, six nations, uh, the Security Council and Germany are going to sign up and have this document and, and sign it uh, and start implementing it. We can come in and uh, revoke it, essentially. So it made the U.S. look kind of disorganized. Um, the office of the president, I would say more generally, was quite undermined. Um, I found myself having to explain this you know, the, the political, domestic political game to Europeans as much as I did the Iranian system to the Europeans. Um, so it was it was quite puzzling and pretty strange for, for most of the European partners. I'd like to give you the opportunity to respond to some of the criticism of the deal. Uh, in July, shortly after the deal was made, uh, Eric Edelman, former Undersecretary of Defense, Ray Take, an Iranian scholar with the Council on Foreign Relations, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. They claimed, quote, the JCPOA concedes an enrichment capacity that is too large, sunset clauses that are too short, a verification regime that is too leaky, 
and enforcement mechanisms that are too suspect. Let's go over each of these on its own. Um, first, can you describe the significance of the limits of enrichment allowed by the JCPOA on Iran? Well, what is important to know is that a number of crit the critics of the deal, including these guys, um, actually believe that any level of enrichment is too much. So they are proponents of the zero enrichment policy that we tried to push in 2005 and that resulted in the first round of negotiations falling apart. The reason why we didn't get a deal at that point, and negotiations, by the way, were going pretty well uh, when the EU was in charge. Once the United States stepped in and said, we want zero enrichment, everything fell apart because that was something that the Iranians were ready to, to accept. And that's when they had about a few hundred centrifuges, not the current capacity they have. So if you're starting based on the idea that that said, you know, zero enrichment is our position and we can't, we can't give them any more than that, then you're not going to be negotiating. You're going to be either taking a military, um, sort of looking at military option, or you're going to be imposing sanctions. But then you have to think about whether or not you believe sanctions to be the means or the end you're pursuing. And I think that for a lot of these folks, um, sanctions are the ends, not really the means. Um, what are we imposing sanctions for? Is to bring a country to the table, right? Um, if not, if it's just to have them under sanction and you know their economy uh, destroyed, then there is no point. That's not going to, to lead anywhere. Uh, so in terms of whether or not there could have been less of, a, of an enrichment capacity, sure. But the number that was ultimately decided, I think, was a number that was both acceptable for the United States and for Iran. And in your expert opinion, it is sufficient. I think so. I think it does, you know, we, we're cutting essentially uh, about 15,000 centrifuges, more or less. Um, we're going back from, from 20,000 centrifuges to about 5,000 centrifuges that are actually enriching. Um, there are some other ones, there are about 1,000 other ones, but they're not doing, they're not enriching uranium. They're just spinning for, the, you know, the sake of spinning, essentially. So, um, yeah, you know, cutting back so many centrifuges, curbing back the enrichment program to, to that extent is, is, I think, is a good thing. There's also the, the fact that we've gone from about um, 10,000 kilograms of um, LEU to a stockpile of about 300 kilograms of LEU. That's a huge decrease in the amount of stockpile, that, in the stockpile that, that Iran can have. Uh, how do you respond to their criticism that Iran can now just wait 10 or 15 years and then pursue a nuclear weapon? Well, that's simply not true because Iran is a member of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, Iran is still going to have a safeguards agreement with the International Atomic Energy Agency, and it is now, um, uh, in addition to all of this, accepting to ratify the additional protocol, which it's in the meanwhile going to be implementing voluntarily, quote-unquote. So the AP is the most intrusive inspections that a country can submit to voluntarily. And that doesn't have a sunset clause. So this means that even after the 10 and 15 years, Iran will still have to abide by all these things. Uh, it will be able to resume a more normalized nuclear program, provided it does actually um, follow the JCPOA, it does implement it. Uh, but ultimately, that doesn't mean that after 15 years, Iran can go ahead and build a bomb and it would be okay. On to the verification question, which, which you're highlighting. Um, can you describe a little bit better how the inspection regime works? So 
the IAEA has a number of tools, both um, you know very basic things like uh, seals and so on, and also more high tech tools like cameras, computers that it can use that it can in, uh, put in different facilities. It has inspectors in the country in all the different facilities that have been declared. And now it is going to have eyes on every single stage of the uh, nuclear fuel cycle, starting from miles and uh, mines and uh, mills, uh, all the way to enrichments. And it has some components that have actually never been done anywhere else in any other country, uh, such as centrifuge assembly workshops. So in no other country uh, are those workshops under inspection, whereas in Iran, now they're going to be. So when people say that this is the most intrusive inspections regime that has ever been imposed on a country, they're not joking. And, you know, I was a proponent of having the strictest inspections regime for the for this deal. I wrote about it a few months ago, um, a year ago. And I, I think that it does a, you know, it's done a pretty good job of actually getting uh, the inspections regime right. I think the strongest point, perhaps, of the deal is actually the inspections regime. Is that the main difference between uh, some of the other non-proliferation agreements we've we've had recently, including North Korea? Uh, some are worried that there's a comparison between the two, and to use the North Korean model as a, a means of concern for the current one. Well, they're completely different cases, right? Um, you're, you're, I think the the comparison between North Korea and Iran on this particular issue is, and actually on most issues, is not a correct one because you're dealing with two completely different cases. One, North Korea actually withdrew from the NPT under Article 10, uh, and it developed nuclear weapons. It's tested three times in the past 15 years. Uh, that's very different from Iran, which is still a member to the non Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, where we still have inspection, expe uh, inspections, and uh, where we have a country that is saying, we don't actually want nuclear weapons, so do whatever you want with it. It's just rhetoric, right? Uh, but it's very different from a country that is very openly saying, that's it, we have nuclear weapons, and you, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, so, and, and also comparing the negotiations and, um, and the outcome of it uh, with North Korea, with this round of talks, and the JCPOA, I think, is, is also misleading. You're looking at a document with the Iran deal that is 150 pages, um, very, very nuanced, very, very detailed document that has essentially tried to take care of most of the loopholes that could exist. Okay. Uh, according to the JCPOA, what happens if Iran breaks the agreement? Well, there is the snapback uh, option of for sanctions. Uh, if Iran uh, is in breach of its terms on the, DG, the JCPOA, um, sanctions can be reimposed. Now, if that is done, it is going to be sanctions that are going to be uh, kicking in with the support of the entire P5 plus one. So that means that the legitimacy of the sanctions regime would be the same that we had this past few years, which is why um, it was pretty successful in bringing Iran to the table. I'm not going to say that that's the only reason why Iran came to the table, but it certainly contributed to Iran's decision to come to the table. Um, Obviously, the other options are still going to be on the table. That doesn't mean that, you know, one of the misleading things, I think, about the discussion on uh, the Iran deal is that that said we have a deal, so all the options are obviously off the table. It doesn't mean that if Iran decides to kick out inspectors tomorrow um, and say, and, you know, tear apart the JCPOA and say, we're, that said, we're not going to comply by this, um, that the United States is going to be limited in its options. That's not going to happen. But... Um, 
if it's a minor violation, I think it will have to be, it will go through um, some sort of uh, process. Uh, if it is found in violation of the agreements, the, the options can be, uh, can be put in place, place again. Uh, you know, a lot of our, our problem um, in the Middle East in general, but certainly with Iran, is, is not understanding intentions uh, from each other. Um, what would you assess Iran's short-term and long-term regional uh, goals in the Middle East? Um, I'm not sure that anyone, uh, including Iran, has uh, long-term goals um, or certainly long-term cohesive strategy for the Middle East. Uh, Iran's policy in much of the region has been very reactionary, right? Um, they have dealt with situations as they've happened. Uh, that's been the case in Iraq. It's been the case in Syria. It's now the case in Yemen. Uh, that said, there are different levels of priority for Iran. The first and foremost priority is Iraq because it's right next door. Uh, they share a border that is quite, long, uh, that is quite large. Um, they have uh, populations that overlap between the two countries, the Kurds, for instance. Uh, Iran and Iraq had a devastating war in the 1980s that really was, um, uh, that came at a great cost for Iran, for Iraq as well. So maintaining Iraq's stability and maintaining some level of influence there is extremely important for Iran. Up next is Syria. Syria is a strategic ally. It's a country that is important for Iran in terms of its access to Hezbollah. Uh, it's a country where Iran is going to is you know has quite a few um, has players has. Um, sorry. It's a country where Iran has um, a lot at stake, but it's not to the same extent as in Iraq. So if it has to choose between Iraq and, and Syria, it would be choosing Iraq. Now. A lot of people are tending to tend to cluster Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, and that's because they look at it from the sectarian perspective. Um, the most important thing to look at is the strategic perspective. What is Iran doing there, and why is it doing these things? Um, you know, the sectarian element is actually not as um, as as prominent as people tend to think. In a lot of cases, Iran doesn't actually want to appear like a, a, a sectarian actor because it's not good for Iran. A lot of its actions do end up making it look like a sectarian actor, uh, but it's not necessarily its intent in a lot of places. Let me give you an example. In Iraq, Iran knows that if it comes off, if it's seen as a sectarian actor, it's going to undermine its role in Iraq. So they've tried to reach out to Sunnis, for instance, uh, Sunni militias, but the Sunnis don't want to work with them. Now, that also goes back to what Iran has been doing in Iraq for the past 15 years. It has not been a constructive player. So it's backfiring now. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they've actually necessarily just wanted to support the Shias, which is what a lot of pe people tend to um, sort of describe the, the Iranian position to be. Now, in terms of Yemen, uh, <laughs> Iran or Yemen is at the bottom of the barrel for, for Iran. Uh, Iran doesn't care that much about Yemen. It's there because it gets the benefit of poking Saudi Arabia in, in the eye a little bit and, you know, doing that without the great cost. I mean, if you look at what's going on, the Saudis are freaking out. Iran is sort of sitting back and enjoying the, the whole thing. So if they can do that, if they can sustain that, then they're going to. But if they could, you know, um, sort of use it as a bargaining chip uh, for Syria or for Iraq, they certainly would. So I would say that there is no long-term comprehensive strategy for the, re for the region. Uh, there's more of a case-by-case -case, uh, view of different countries and how they play into Iran's broader strategy.
Okay. One final question. Um, taking a look at the global environment, um, strategic environment, uh, after Iran, what are some of the next big non-proliferation challenges for the United States and the international community? Well, the biggest and most obvious one is North Korea. Uh, you know, we've been trying to deal with North Korea for decades now, and it hasn't gone anywhere. So that is the biggest issue. Um, there are now talks about the North Koreans potentially testing again for a fourth time. Uh, so that's something that needs to be dealt with uh, pretty pretty soon. Um, some of the other issues are nuclear security. You know, we're going to have the final nuclear security summit in 2016. Uh, that's a, an initiative that President Obama started um, and that um, is going to, I guess, take a different form or perhaps stop um, after he leaves office. Uh, but the issue of nuclear security or securing nuclear materials and facilities is still going to be a crucial one. Um, we have groups that have expressed their intent um, and interest in nuclear weapons and nuclear materials. Uh, Al-Qaeda was one of them. Uh, now we have a group like ISIS uh, that continues to progress throughout the, the Middle East. Uh, and it's crucial to make sure that these materials don't fall in the wrong hands. So nuclear security is, a, is, a, is the next step, um, the most, one of the most important things that we, we have to do. Um, and lastly, I would point out the comprehensive, comprehensive Test Ban Treaty which has been signed by a number of countries, has been ratified by most countries, that has not been ratified by a number of key countries that need to ratify it in order for it to enter into force. Iran, incidentally, is one of them. The United States is another. So making sure that the CTBT is ratified by these countries and enters into force uh, to sort of limit and, um, and ban nuclear tests is a very important next step. Dr. Tsubadabai, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you.